Hello, David. Ben, how are you? I am uh, joining you from a new a new location today. Oh, snazzy new digs. Any, any different. I am trying out a one of these new uh, indoor phone booths that we just got here at the Pioneer Square Labs office, and uh, it's got a nice, nice cushy inside that looked good for absorbing sound. I believe on our last LP show where we were looking at our Twitter feeds, you were talking about uh, indoor <laughs> phone booths. It was clearly yeah. on your mind. Yeah. I mean, we constantly have the problem of uh, too many needs for conference rooms and not enough of them, and this is the... Uh, 2019 hyper efficient solution to that problem yeah how many how many people work at psl now so we have 25 core team employees um but i think across our spin outs it's over 250 or so wow and and in the office listeners this will become relevant in just a minute as you already know from the title of the episode yeah, good good question about in the office 50 to 75 i think wow. we uh regrettably only have two floors right now so at some point when the companies hit 10 or 12 they gotta gotta go find uh space usually yeah. close by in in pioneer square but yeah. uh, hence the need for phone booths hence the need for the phone booths <laughs> today we are doing an episode on startup studios we've had tons of requests for uh how does a startup studio work and what actually does that term mean? I sort of thought it was funny that despite David and I spending a ton of time with you all, we actually rarely talk about our day jobs. Four years ago, we started Pioneer Square Labs and startup studios weren't really a thing. And we started right around the same time as, as High Alpha. And there had been some other previous things such as Betaworks uh, and Science and the original Idea Lab that, that uh, had started before. But you know, now there's like over a hundred studios and all these different cities and, you know, a handful of unicorns that have come out of them and yeah. industry yeah. associations. And it's this whole thing that uh, I think has has sort of been begging for a little bit more explanation on what they actually are. Yeah. And I, I haven't really seen or heard uh, any really good content out there uh, from from people like yourselves who are founders of, of this new wave of studios talking about them. So excited to talk about and we we should clarify the we of doing all the great work of starting this is is not me <laughs> it's you and uh you and your co-founders at psl i'm stuck in the old school you know traditional venture world <laughs> but uh, <laughs> tried and true baby yeah. <laughs> but this is great i get to learn a lot more about uh well i already know a bunch but along with our audience get to reiterate and learn a bunch about what you guys are doing um so where should we start interviewer well <laughs> Let's go back to 1890. No. <laughs> uh, obviously, Ben and I both used to work at, at Madrona Venture Group in Seattle. And you and your co-founder, Greg Gottesman, had worked there, worked at Madrona Labs at within Madrona. How did you guys start thinking about like bringing back the studio concept? You know, you mentioned High Alpha was out there and obviously we, we know Scott, but it wasn't like it is now where there are a ton of these out there. Like how did how did the idea kind of form? Yeah, well, all that credit goes to Greg. Greg had started Rover by pitching it at a startup weekend, as we've well covered on this show, and hired Phil to to you know head up the the technical side of the organization, um, and uh, served as interim CEO for a handful of months. And and uh, Aaron was an entrepreneur in residence at Madrona, and so Greg, over the period of time of trying to show some proof in the business and, and Phil really building product, convinced Aaron that Aaron should jump over the fence and be the CEO. You know, it really occurred to Greg, well, gosh, if I can do this, you know, with one company like Rover, maybe I can do it systematically. So that was sort of the birth of, of Madrona Labs and um, 
we had started two companies there, Muddy AI, which just got acquired by Uber's advanced technology group for their self-driving car stuff and, and all the data labeling, and Reply Yes, which was uh, acquired a little bit earlier by Nordstrom, uh, which was a um, oh. SMS-based e-commerce company. I didn't see that uh, Nordstrom had acquired Reply Yes. That's awesome. Good for yep. them. So that sort of planted the seed. It's possible to do this in a repeatable way with a team where the economies of scale from all the early learnings of, of uh, building these companies kind of accrue to a singular team that's going to be doing this over and over and over again. And we realized really at scale, if you were going to do this model and, and have it be great, it needed to kind of be its own thing. And so we started thinking about Pioneer Square Labs as, gosh, what if you could really blow it out with a, a startup studio um, kind of platform rather than being part of a single uh, investment firm, which tons of of great uh, venture capital firms have incubated companies over the years. What if you actually could be uh, a separate entity and be funded by a ton of venture capital firms? So that's what we did. Uh, we got 14 venture firms. Um, Foundry Group kind of catalyzed the the funding, but tons of great uh, firms here in Seattle and in the Bay Area um, to put money in over 50 angel investors, basically all the active angels in Seattle to really build this sort of uh, coalition of people who were, of course, bullish on the success of the the studio model itself, that, that there could be a great return uh, there, but more importantly, to... Um, you know, really understand what companies were being started so that all of those angel investors and venture firms could potentially invest in the seed rounds of the companies that uh, that spun out. You know, I talk about, uh, you know, as a VC, like the the lifeblood of our business is is entrepreneurs starting new companies. And, uh, um, you know, this is a great idea. How many how many spin outs in total have you guys had over the last five years? We just spun out our 16th. Wow. Uh, that one hasn't, hasn't been announced yet, but the other 15 have. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, including Glow, you know, 15 companies, 16 companies that wouldn't exist otherwise. As you mentioned, Idea Lab, like there have been a few of these studios way back in the previous generations of, you know, the startups and the internet. How much time did you spend studying those models? And, and what changed for you guys that was like, oh, we can do this at scale in a different way now and, and for everyone else out there? Well, it's interesting. So, so yes, definitely talk to folks, talk to the uh, the leaders at uh, both BetaWorks and Science, who were sort of the two leading folks at the time. And actually, High Alpha uh, has been started by by Scott Dorsey, who's obviously a, a friend of the show and, and did a great episode with us on uh, on the exact target acquisition. Was starting High Alpha like at exactly the same time that that we were starting PSL, and so we sort of bounced a lot of ideas off each other on. Um, you know how these things should be should be structured and formed, and we share some investors too. Definitely talked and got a lay of the land. I think the thing that has changed, we felt like there was this really odd mismatch where, despite the fact that it's easier to start, a, or I should say, cheaper to start a company than ever, but just as expensive to scale it. So it's it's with the advent of Amazon Web Services to very quickly start a, you know, an internet-based application and and acquire customers on a zero fixed cost basis so you can just buy a handful of Facebook ads and there's no sort of like large asset you need to build to start acquiring customers. You know, so so companies are cheaper than ever to start, but there was still this massive gap of you basically have two options if you want to work in the technology industry. You can take no risk and work at a big company 
or you can take all of the risk and go bootstrap something on your own until you can get it to a place where it can get funded. And it felt like there was this sort of like missing spectrum in between the two where, gosh, you're a great operator. You know, you've risen up through some company. Maybe you're a serial entrepreneur who started some things before, but just know how much it sucks to be in that phase of finding your way in the woods. Wouldn't it be nice if there was some option where you could could not only sort of like have a risk defrayed way of starting a company where you can spend some time to figure out, should this even be a company before I sort of fully launch into it? But then also to, to basically, like I said earlier, build economies of scale around all the knowledge of what it takes to validate an early stage idea and to determine if it's worth your time or not, which for everybody that we're working with, time is by far the most valuable asset. What we do with our careers and the way that we spend our days is highly considered. You know, I have to imagine a big part of that that's changed from the first generation of startups in the internet and studios is there's just exponentially more people working in technology now. I mean, we joke oh about gosh, on yeah. the main show about how like <laughs> everybody knew each other back in the day on the internet. And that really was the case. Now there are, you know, millions of people in, you know, like San Francisco alone, but the, like forget like in Seattle too, and like maybe not millions at Seattle, but hundreds of thousands and, uh, you know, all across America and across the world that are working in tech. And some percentage of those folks are going to fall into the two camps, like you said, of like, I want none of the risk. I want to just work at Google or Facebook or whatever uh, at a stable big tech company, or I want all of the risk. I want to start a, a, a startup on my own or, you know, as, as a team or solo. But then there's also going to be people in the middle, too. And there's just so many more people that I imagine there's there's more talent that can fit into that for you guys. Yeah, and it's funny. I mean, we so we looked at the data. In 2018, uh, we started 14.3% of all of the companies that received early stage funding in Seattle last year. That number has shocked me because I continue to believe that most companies will be started the traditional way. Like, I don't think this model is sort of the the right way to start a company or the way everyone should start a company by any means. And you guys um, also have a venture fund now that you invest in. Yeah, I should yep. say too. And and um, I'm actually doing a lot of work on that that as well. PSL Ventures, $80 million early stage fund, uh, both to invest in uh, the companies that we start, but then also to invest in the companies that we don't start that are great Pacific Northwest companies. To loop back to your question of why now, it is amazing to me with the the tools that we have available with the we actually do a bunch of the sort of no code movement stuff i just can't believe how much there is off the shelf tools that are available that you can stitch together to validate a concept where you really can with the the tool set available today um, get good at this thing that's called concept validation that basically nobody got good at before because if you're lucky, you start a company once in your life. If you're one of the rare 10% of entrepreneurs that start multiple companies in your life, you have two, maybe three times you do it. But nobody's like, nobody's lather, rinse, repeating this early stage that most people look back on and say, gosh, it was, if the, if it worked, which is rare, they say, gosh, it was fun because we were such a close, small, tight-knit team. But nobody really looks back on that and says like, oh, it was easy and we knew what we were doing and we had good tooling and good systems and good processes around that. And so I think like we sort of saw this opportunity is, is that actually a core competency that is possible to get good at? A little bit of a side, but made me think of it. Um, do you guys use Retool? We don't. Oh, I've just started hearing about uh, this. Um, I haven't used it yet and I don't think any of our portfolio companies have yet, but basically it's a, it's a way, you know, without actually writing code that you can, it's a product and a company that you can stitch together a lot of essentially of 
back end, quote unquote, of a product and get it out there without actually writing any real code. It's like, uh, that's cool. It's like, you know, there's like bubble and Webflow and like, you know, sort of front end versions of no code stuff. Like this is like the back end version is my understanding of it. But um, listeners, if you if you used it, give us a shout. Let us know. We've done Airtable for a lot of stuff. I think, frankly, like as as old school as it sounds, like we do a lot of just use Instapage, make a landing page for something and drive a bunch of traffic to it and then be- benchmark all of the conversion rates of the traffic that we've driven against all the conversion rates of the other probably 120 or so things that we've run Google or Facebook ads against over the course of starting, you know, starting PSL. Wow. Cool. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout Quarter's. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R no e q u a r t r dot com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the quarter team our thanks to quarter let's jump into how it works then so there's two sides basically as i understand it to your business and process and one of which is the idea side and and the other which is the people side and of course they meet you know in the middle let's start with the idea side how are you guys coming up with ideas and and then what do you what do you do when someone has internally on the team something that they want to pursue? So I'd say 50% of our ideas come internally within the team. The other 50% come from uh, an entrepreneur who's approaching us with an idea, who's someone that maybe we've worked with before, or we have a really positive reference on, or um, you know, for whatever reason we we believe that that person would be a great founder that we want to work with. <laughs> our original model was uh, we will come up with our own ideas, and then when it's working, we'll come find you, which was silly. And uh, <laughs> we've we've become much more flexible on where the idea comes from, and I think um, 
you know, we're, we're far better off for it. But uh, we still generate a bunch of ideas internally. We hold uh, highly structured ideation sessions every couple of weeks where it's sort <laughs> is of... Is that highly structured a, in air quotes or actually highly structured? No, it truly is. <laughs> like we actually, we've developed a two-minute pitch process voting. Oh, we've wow. actually built software around voting and determining if we should continue after a two-minute pitch into a 10-minute moderated discussion oh, wow. um, or whether we should sort of kill the idea on the spot. There's two actually very important things to the numerical voting. One is uh, five is not on the number pad, which means <laughs> that, that you have to have an opinion. And two is, yes, we pay attention to the average. The average should be north of a five to continue on to a discussion. But if anybody votes 10, it automatically goes to a discussion because we believe that the best ideas can be polarizing. And so, you know, if if the whole group is huddled around fours and sixes, but it trends at four and a half or something like that, but somebody's a 10, you know, it's it's very much like a pound the table style of of um, investing where you say, look, that person really wants to go to bat for it. We, we owe it to the idea to figure out why that valuable member of our team is so obsessed. And so that that's sort of like the automatic uh, go button. But, it's like the... Uh uh, I haven't watched American Idol in, in long enough, but uh, there, there's like uh, one of these shows, there's like a button that the hosts push and then they, you're automatically <laughs> through to the finals or whatever. Anyway. Uh, okay. So that's, that's step one is so, two so minute there's, pitch. There, there's those, you know, there's like that, that, uh, and how, how often are you guys doing these ideation sessions? Uh, every other week. And um, sometimes they're, they're no topic, which is like, come bring whatever you're personally excited about. Often they're around a vertical that we want to do work in. So um, we had one three and a half years ago in insurance and uh, jet closing, which is a title and escrow title insurance company came out of that. So I think there's they're thematically driven in that, you know, we pay attention to trends much like any investor would and then try and double down on what areas should we start a company. And then I would say the other times when we will verticalize those is if there is an entrepreneur in residence that we're excited about working with that we're trying to find something on together and they're passionate about a certain area or have a background in a certain area, we can do ideation sessions sort of specifically geared toward that where we'll send home research to read and um, and everyone sort of comes in with uh, how can I apply different business models to this industry. Got it. So I would assume ideas that come up in this stage, there that's not your... 120 that you've pursued like that's you're probably in the like many thousands that's, that you've thrown I, out yeah there. i think i was trying to figure it out the other day because i was working on our numbers we've we've killed nine out of ten which at, means at I that think, stage or, or nine out of ten period so, of being killed yeah uh we've killed nine out of ten that we've actively done work on so that means i don't have the number in front of me but we've it's something like 170 or 180 ideas that we've actively worked on which yeah to your point i think it's something like seven or eight hundred different concepts that we've gone through and are in this gigantic database that we've built of mostly bad ideas <laughs> nice. um, that are stored for if you ever want to visit the graveyard. <laughs> Do you guys use what, like Airtable or Google Sheets for that? Or? Uh, and it's a Postgres database. Oh, wow. that, that actually was not no code. That was a uh, initially an intern project of nice. somebody building our ideation nice. software system. Okay, so two-minute pitch. Then... If you get either a 10 or enough enthusiasm from the two-minute pitch, then what happens? Everything has these two paths. One is the path where there's we know who the founder or founders are from the very beginning and we're working around them where that's a much easier path because like we don't have to designate an internal project lead. Like there's not someone who's trying to 
you know, from our team spend the majority of their time putting on like the pre-CEO hat, which is normally my job when I'm working on the, the, the studio stuff is go pretend that you're running this company and see if there's something there or not. That's easy because then it's like, cool, the, the, the person who's going to be the founder of this sort of owns it from day zero. And the like, perfect example, you, you, you did this for, for Glow before, before Amira came on board, right? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, did an excellent job as a customer, I can say. Yeah, as uh, for folks who are sort of wondering how that went down, Amira had been thinking about something very similar, but at the time, actually, neither of us had the perfect incantation of how it ended up. David, you and I were very much talking about Glow, FKA, Kimberlite as an app, um, and Amira was thinking about it as this SMS service, and sort of like only through going back and forth a bunch did we sort of land together on this should definitely be a web app. Yeah, yeah. Totally. So model one is the the founders are running with it sort of from day one. Model two is someone like me will uh, basically own it and every week be sort of faced with the decision of justifying why this thing should continue to exist. And so we try to put the right balance of the project lead is always going to be inherently optimistic. And then there should always be someone else, either within PSL or maybe their co-founder, it's probably someone within PSL, um, that is sort of the foil to that of figuring out, okay, have you thought about this? Have you thought about what's the thing that's going to kill this business? And the order that we tend to work on ideas in is if you think about the 10 slide deck, problem, solution, market size, all this stuff, you, you, you just basically try and go down that list and look at the ones that look highest risk to you. Like, ooh, is that actually a problem? Or can, ooh, can we actually build the technology to create the solution for that? Or ooh, is the market going to be big enough? And you basically try and kill it with the most obvious one. And then only when you get through what seem like they should be the biggest risks all the way down to being able to kind of actually make the whole 10 slide deck and be like, there's a real case for every one of these things. That's when it's on the path to being spun out is when you determine that you tried to call it a bad idea in all these different ways, but it turned out to actually be a good one. What have you guys found over the years since you've, it was 2015 when you started or twenty sixteen? October 2015. Yep. October 2015. Wow. Like that was almost the same time we started Acquired. Right? It was exactly the same time, or maybe oh, like man. a month. I think we started yeah. acquired a month before. Oh, that's awesome. I never put two and two together that you started two things right at the same time. Because we we both had Madrona in our title when we um when when we started we the podcast first started the show. That's right. Yeah. So you mentioned you know the earliest instantiation of PSL was don't find us, we'll find you. Uh, well, it was also, I mean, it was basically, it was eight of us. So there's, there's four co-founders and then four super fast sort of early hires. It was also like, we were trying to do stuff in parallel, but we basically were all working on the same stuff. Maybe you had maybe two things going on at once. We didn't really have the bandwidth to, to be able to do that or know what resources you should put on a project at what time. Yep. How has that evolved? I mean, now I would assume... Certainly, there are still cases where, like, somebody internally at PSL is is running with an idea pre CEO phase. But it sounds like it's much smoother when you have the founder like there at the beginning, right? Yeah, it's it's a gigantic maze of funnels. Basically, there's one macro funnel that is there's sort of the five stages, and only because we've brought in my wonderful partner TA, who's more systematic and organized than I could ever hope to be, do we have these phases sort of codified. 
so you think of it as a, as a funnel. Uh, there's ideation, which we talked about, validation, which we, we've got a whole bunch of kind of, I guess, machinery around that, and a team that specifically works on validation. Then creation. So it's basically like design and development of, of the product. And then spin out, which is when we formally create the entity, transfer the intellectual property, all that stuff. And then scale up, which is after it has been seed funded to actually hiring and scaling up the, the company. And so there's that mega funnel that defines our business. But then we've got a, a handful of other funnels. So there's sort of the idea funnel, which is going into ideation. There's the um, founder funnel, which is you know all of us doing the work very similar to what you do. I think getting to know really smart people who have domain expertise in areas that you think you might want to start companies in or, or fund companies in that you know you want to be a part of their next venture. And then there's another funnel, which is sort of this third part of our business. You mentioned uh, ideas and you mentioned uh, uh, people, but it's really investors. Part of our validation process is do other very smart venture capitalists think that this is something that they'd want to invest in? Because you know our, our business model is to create venture scale companies. So we would like some venture capitalists among the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds that we know to say like, yeah, I don't know, you should do more work there, but it seems like there's a there there. And so there's sort of this funnel of uh, of who's going to invest in this thing, which actually is both nice because it speeds up the um, fundraising process for investors when or for entrepreneurs when they spin out of PSL, but it also helps entrepreneurs figure out, okay, is this worth my time? Is this worth pursuing? Or are we going to have, you know, really a really rough time capitalizing it later? I feel like at almost every stage of the business, you know, entrepreneurs need to be thinking about not just like, where's my next funding round coming from and what does it look like? Um, but also what, you know, what is the, what is the capitalization and financing life cycle of this business look like? Uh, cause it's very, very different for different sectors. And, uh, I think entrepreneurs and, and, and also early investors have the most heartburn is when your expectations are, this business looks like one path and it ends up looking like another. Totally. So funny. I have a half written blog post right now that is uh, why you shouldn't raise venture capital. And I think like you and I have <laughs> talked about a lot on this show, like most businesses shouldn't raise venture capital. And in fact, most venture backed businesses shouldn't have raised venture capital. And so how do you, how do you, you know, sort of spot that early and figure out what actually should go into that asset class of huge market, rapid growth, you know, the, all, all the, all the things that make a great venture investment. Yep. Yep. Validation. Let's, let's talk more about that. This, you guys do yeah. a ton of work and we're very scientific around this. Yeah, so Peter Denton leads our validation efforts. Um, it was funny, when I was trying to hire for the profile of Peter, I thought initially it should be a marketer. So I interviewed like 20 director of marketings at different companies. Ultimately, really grateful that um, when we found Peter, his title on LinkedIn was VP of marketing, which Peter's like, a, I hesitate to use the word growth hacker, but like putting VP of marketing was a hack so that he could nobody at his company was doing marketing and so when the press contacted them and said we need to speak to someone to give a quote he updated his linkedin to say vp of marketing <laughs> so that they so could that, get a quote from the vp of marketing so it. it's one of those sorts of, but background as a product manager and and um technical enough to write a bunch of javascript and and figure out how to um go really deep into facebook's tools and and use their api so what peter has basically built is a bunch of machinery around quickly spinning up landing pages for concepts and testing a, a gigantic matrix of value propositions 
and audiences to figure out sort of not only with this sort of early burner brand, uh, does someone want this, but why do they want it and who is that segment that this has strong resonance with? And so we're looking for is, you know, double digit uh, click through rates off of a Facebook ad, or we're looking for double digit conversion rates on leaving your email address once you're on a um, a landing page. And we're, you know, these are all different for different business models. These are all different for, for different audiences. And so part of the stuff that he's built is basically benchmarking all those conversion rates against all the other ideas we've tested and figuring out, you know, does this look like what boundless looks like where, my gosh, there's this perfect group of people who want marriage-based green cards that really resonate with this particular value proposition. And when you launch the product, you just sort of know that it's going to work. And of course, other folks at PSL and Lindsay on his team do a bunch of work of actually talking with customers and, and verifying that what shows up in the numbers is actually qualitatively true. But you can sort of have confidence that, you know, that that concept is resonant with that particular audience. At that phase, when you're Doing that kind of testing, you mentioned, you know, burner brands, like um, how often does what you're testing, you know, whether it's the brand or some, you know, if you have even a small form of the product or whatever, like, does that survive versus like, you're really, it's, you're just trying to see like, is there, is there a demand signal and like, you get to the next step when you get to the next step. It did earlier on, um, but now that we're more sort of like uh, we draw a brighter line between what work we're doing for validation and what work we're doing for actually building a product, they typically don't survive. Like our design team tends to not get active or at least put a full, you know, more than a couple of hours into the landing page that we're putting together for for one of these burner brands. And I think that like we don't kid ourselves into saying we need to iteratively evolve that crap landing page that we built to be this, you know, real full experience that's fully thought through that takes all of our voice of customer learnings like uh, yeah, they, they they tend not to survive. I will say a funny thing that I learned from Peter the other day that we need to do a write up on because this is just great is on these uh, sort of burner brand sites where uh, we're trying to make it look as real as possible so that we get really crisp data on that's not confounded by people going, I don't know, not only is have I never heard real? of this, but it doesn't look legit is like all the links on the site are there, just none of them work. So they're like hrefs with nothing in them like little just anchor tags and then we we put all the analytics on everything to see like where are people clicking for everything other than the like (laughs) mail capture or the checkout here or whatever the thing is and the number one thing by far and away that gets clicked on is reviews so like if we were selling we were testing a cpg product and and basically everyone was clicking reviews no one cared about no one cared all these other things i thought that was fascinating of like what do people want? Social proof. And if they don't see it on the homepage, they're going to go look for the social proof. Interesting. Huh. Amazing. I should keep going on that well, too. There's there's like lots of stuff you can do other than just drive Facebook ad traffic. Like that's interesting, but there's more free stuff you can do, too, like determining market size based on number of uh, searches for your set of keywords per month. Like you can get a sense of like relative traffic that that basically are a large enough number of people concerned with a problem that your company solves where without spending any money on Google ads and knowing conversion rates, you can see who else is bidding. You can see what the volume of searches is using Google Keyword Planner. You can look at, and this was actually kind of interesting in a business I was looking at last week, looking at Google Trends 
to get more real-time information than you could get in research reports. Because I think the first thing that like I always do, and I'm sure everyone does when someone says, hmm, is this a big idea or not? Is you go look for some third-party research firm that's you know, drawn some conclusion about what the market size is. And that's a trailing indicator. Like if you're in a growth market, that's going to be backward looking. And, you know, Gardner a isn't whole bunch writing of... any reports about, uh, you know, I don't know, X, Y, Z, whatever yeah. great, the next great entrepreneurs are working on because they're the next great entrepreneurs working on them. Yeah, that's exactly right. The true believers aren't waiting for the research reports to come out to start working on their products. They're excited about it because they're excited about it. And they sort of know their secret. They know they're right. And so if you're trying to do some of this a little bit more methodically, then you need to not just be looking at research reports for is this going to be a thing or not? You need to use alternate methods of, of determining that. What does good look like? Like what what's a, you know, obviously changes by sector and whatnot, but like what's a good conversion rate that you're like, yep, this passes the test? I would say for click-through rates, looking for north of 5% and for on-page conversion to email addresses, looking for north of 10%. The real answer to this question and the thing I get yelled at every time by my colleague Ben Rush and my colleague Peter Denton is uh, it's not the click-through rates dummy, it's the cost to acquire a customer. And who cares how... There's so many levers you can play with, and I'll give you an example here. What if you pay a ton of money per impression to get the most highly qualified uh, customer to see the ad, and then you're going to get like 30% click-through rate or something crazy, and then if you match the copy on the site and the messaging on the site perfectly to the ad and perfectly to what that really high-value person on Facebook said they were interested in, then you're very likely to get an email address, but oh my God, you just paid $600 for you know this... Um, wealthy millennial in investment banking who's looking to buy $400 sweatpants. And it's like, okay, but like, is there a way that you can get a sort of broader top of funnel and accept some lower conversion rates, but end up with your cost of customer acquisition being dramatically lower? And I, I think like that, the, <laughs> my temptation is always to say, well, how'd the conversion rates look? But ultimately that is only a proxy and, mm -hmm. it, it, and you can spoof it with um, the way that you are doing your targeting. So really what you're more trying to find is like, is there a deep enough pool of potential customers out there that we can acquire for, you know, a reasonable amount of money that we can make the economics work given whatever the economics of this product yep. or service are? And, and frankly, like most ideas don't even get there. Like most things, we are wrong that there is anybody who has a desire for that thing. I think the tendency of founders is either and especially with people looking for a problem to solve, which is often what we're doing in a studio, where we're relying on our own ideas and probably even better the ideas that come from other people. But like the ideas that you tend to come up with when you're looking for a startup to work on are either your own problem, so you're going to way overfit to your own needs, or two, uh, you make false assumptions about the people who experience the problem. Like if you're building something for the enterprise IT buyer, but you've never been one, you're probably wrong. And like if you can find a way to do some validation, like you're not even going to get to the how deep is the well question because you're going to get cut off at the knees at like, nope, people don't have that problem. Or if they do, your thing doesn't actually fix it for them. Yep. Yep. Okay. So that's a perfect tee up to my second question before we move on to your next stage is maybe this is why you have the venture firm now in addition to the studio. Do you find or do you not find at all that the types of ideas that make it through this maze in the studio are generally like 
not the type of ideas that like are just like nobody would have because you have to like prove somebody would want them like that are like uh i don't know like airbnb in the early days everybody would be like that's crazy nobody's gonna do but you need like a missionary entrepreneur that's gonna just like change everybody's perception of something i do think there are a set of companies that will be very successful that uh we have probably already killed and just had a false negative on and i also think there's a set of things we haven't even considered and I'll give an example of like uh, absent the founder coming to us and having already done something in this space. If someone pitched me on creating the next Webflow or Sketch or killing email or so one of these things that's like a or superhuman, you know, something that's like a three year build. If they if they're like, we should do that as a studio. It's sort of like, uh, I don't know, I, maybe but we're not going to be able to validate it. Yeah, so like yeah, what yeah. we do have to be willing to do is such a heavy the, lift that, right. Yeah. It's like, well, let's use, we believe we should do this in the studio for all these other reasons that are not validation. And those are so compelling that let's start the company that way instead of, you know, that founder going off and starting it the traditional way and sort of pitching for, for investment. I think, yeah. um, but like, I would say we will only do one of those, I don't know, once a year, once every other year. It's going to be, a, it's, it's got to be a small part of the portfolio because yeah. they're big beta bets. Yeah. And do you, you guys must actively think about that as you're resourcing stuff, right? Like, yeah, this is a heavy lift. Like, we're so convinced we're going to like take the risk on this, but, you know, you could do three less heavy lifts, you know, with the same amount of resources and time. Yeah. Yep. And and then there's always that question, too, of like, do we actually believe that we are oracles enough, the answer is already no, to know that like this one that we're going to put so many eggs in is as it goes on its startup roller coaster journey, is it actually three times more likely to succeed than these other three bets we could have made? It's like, ah, startups are so hard, man. I don't know. <laughs> it's funny. I feel that, I mean, this is making me think like the, the longer my career gets in VC and sounds like you're feeling the same you know thing on the studio side like the the more i'm sure that of the less i know you know <laughs> like <laughs> i'm i'm more certain that i know not much you know <laughs> yeah and and like we've 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 had long kills that really hurt like we learned the hard way a couple of times not to do hardware in the studio. We, we had a six-month project and a nine-month project that I, I think one thing I've been thinking about is a kill blog. Like, like anytime we, we kill something, like writing up why and writing up what the idea was and sort of saying, like, anybody else who wants to work on this, you should take a shot. But here's why we didn't continue it. Um, but we had two, one in IoT and one in um, radiation detection, for lack of a better. It's a long story. Oh. Um that is, uh, that, there's a story there, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, um, it's it's just really hard to do. I, I think if we were going to, if you were going to do hardware in a studio, you'd want to have a dedicated model to that where you were going to have a hardware lab, where you were going to take on a bunch of big CapEx costs, and you were going to build intentional muscle around how do you validate hardware concepts, because I think it's a whole different, whole different game. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so after validation, you've got an idea, it passes passes the the appropriate benchmarks with flying colors what next so we've got a team of uh eight engineers who are their, their backgrounds are mostly sort of like founder ctos um who sort of know how to make the well there's two important things one they know how to build an application as a one-person team on the engineering side and 
do a lot of their own product management, which I think is is tricky, but is really like it, it's that technical co-founder role. Like you're not going to probably have a product manager. And so you're sort of either the design, you have a designer on your team that's acting as product manager, or the CEO is both doing sales and product, which is hard, or the CTO is sort of um, doing their own product management. So category one is kind of functioning sort of independently in that role. Um, and then category two is understanding how to make the appropriate trade-offs for what is overbuilding in a startup and what leaves the founder and CTO who will come in after you high and dry, and how do you not do that? And as um, uh, our former CTO, who actually spun out and is now the CTO of one of our portfolio companies, Attunely, Ryan Kosai told me, code is temporary, but architecture is forever. And I always like that that way of describing really this job of the sort of technical project lead within PSL that is basically making these decisions that somebody else will inherit, but making them with, you know, many years of informed sort of co-founder CTO experience um, to know what what trade-offs to make there. And so, you know, they start working with a designer on our team and the at this point, typically the person who will be the founder and CEO um, on on building that product that, that we now have convinced conviction that um, some significant number of people want and want badly enough that they've convinced us that we should pour resources into building it. Let's flip over to the other track and then com- come back to the combined idea and people track of, of people. Like You're working on <laughs> so an now, idea that... Now you are living exactly in my world, by the yeah. way, is constantly flipping between people and making progress on those ideas, investors having conversations, setting expectations. And it's sort of this triangle that you're trying to get all over the finish line at the same time. I would say I'm walking a mile in your shoes, but we both wear fly nets. So, you know, walking a mile in our shoes. (laughs) You walk miles in my shoes every day. Um, So when you have an idea that is in this stage, you're looking for the right founder. If you do, when in cases where the founder is not already part of it, where do you look? How do you pretty, yeah. how do you and find it the right pretty folks? early in, in yeah. validation? Like you, one of the things that we're looking for, in addition to you know the qualitative talking to customers, the quantitative running driving all this traffic, is really like talking to experts in this industry that we can shortcut to and and having them kill it for us. Important in that is if we're talking to industry insiders, making sure to not over-index on their signal of this will never work, because often that's like actually a reason you should do a startup. I think we look a lot in obviously our own networks of um, um, people who have been at high-growth companies in the past that understand the pace of scaling, um, that know how to manage teams, that are people that are going to be able to to successfully raise money down the line, that are charismatic, that are great storytellers, that are magnets for talent. That that either really understand this industry as an insider or have something about their background that makes you believe they'll be successful in this industry. And so this is where the job is sort of like part venture capitalist because you're really making a people bet that they're going to be the right person to take the raw material that we've created so far and sort of like turn that wet clay into a real company with direction. And I think that even even when we build the crap out of something and we have like a product and we know the value prop and it's generating revenue and it has customers, like if we recruit someone really late in the game, they still end up reforming it. They're still the founder of the company. It's still raw material for them. It was a while ago I watched uh, Alfred Lin uh, give a talk that's on YouTube somewhere. Uh, I'll see if I can find it and link to it in the show notes. The, his interviewer was asking him, uh, Alfred Lynn, of course, friend of the show, uh, we, we had for our Zappos episode and is now head of uh, uh, the U.S. venture practice at Sequoia, and asked him you know, what he looks for in a founder. And he said, you know, I've come to think over the years that like 
really the most important thing is founder market fit. You know, are you the right person to attack this market? Because if it's a good market, there are going to be a lot of people that are attacking it. And so you have to believe that there's something special about this in the early days, this team. And then, and then once the product is built, like the product, but the product is a reflection of, you know, the founders that is going to win. Uh, yeah, there has to be something special about that. Yeah, and Amira is a great example of this. I mean, if you think about like what what were we looking for? I I interviewed, and it's funny, it's not interviewed. It's more like got coffee with or had a casual conversation with probably twenty old media people, where it was like, ooh, this person's you know, they they were a big big wig at a radio station, or they were at an agency that made massive ad buys in the audio space and understands how monetization works in the eighteen billion dollar terrestrial radio industry. And was, it, I just kept getting this vibe. It's like oh, these are not the people that's going to figure this out. And uh, it was through um, through your introduction and through meeting Amira at Podcast Movement where she had like been running a sort of boutique ad agency in the podcast space, not because she thought that was going to be a big business because that was how she thought she was going to learn about what the big business was, where there was sort of that light bulb moment of like, oh, this is exactly the type of persona who is like already betting her career on, hey, I should go figure out where the opportunity is in this market. I'm willing to think about it in a different way. Uh, Totally. Yeah. Um, Totally. I'll also say, I just want to tack on, uh, this is where having all the venture firms and angel investors is a huge asset because when we're working on something, we just like once a month, we email all of our investors and say, here's all the projects we're working on. Uh, here's the ones that don't have people yet. If there's somebody that you've been wanting to invest in that uh, doesn't have a thing and you think they'd be great for this, let us know. And that's totally happened. And that, that's been a huge asset. Oh, that's odds like you've got uh, <laughs> built-in multi-sided sourcing for your <laughs> <laughs> for uh, your own investors and, and your company, like deal flow and LP flow. <laughs> okay, so product building phase is build the product what does it then look like to spin out like you know you, at this point you've got you've got a product demand is validated you've got a team you've got a product bill or at least a early product bill why would you kill anything at this point <laughs> so we basically i mean we're really making a uh, at this point in the maturity of psl we're making a go decision when we start doing engineering work unless we are explicitly doing engineering work because we believe that a key risk is the technical feasibility. And we're pretty clear about when we are deviating from our process and doing tech before we feel something is fully validated. We have we have something right now actually that just made it through validation and that is is working on there's a designer attached to it now. It's it's already it's becoming a real product, but we spent an engineer's time for two or three months, like determining if this thing that was written about in this research paper was possible or not. We just try and be really judicious about are we, are we kicking the can down the road and not making a validation decision unintentionally? Or, you know, why are we doing the work that we're doing right now? But I would say technical feasibility is a barrier maybe 20% of the time and the rest of the time we're able to say we feel reasonably confident we should do we can do that so let's evaluate every other component of this business are we going to spin it out that that's basically when the 
person who is going to be the founder and CEO of this business makes the the pitch to us of, I'm ready, I'm excited, here's everything we've learned so far. We call these deep dives, which is really, the, it's sort of an escalating set of meetings that um, starts just as like, hey, let's all talk about what the interesting direction for this business can be. Um, and it, it's a series of updates that sort of culminates in really someone saying, yeah, I'm ready to go spend my life on this and, and I have conviction, so you should have conviction. It kind of makes sense to launch right into um, to fundraising after that, because you've basically, you know, you, you've you've got the narrative for yourself of why you're doing it down, so you're sort of ready to go and and talk to the world about it. Have you guys evolved your thinking and approach to fundraising for spinouts at all over the last few years? I mean, I'm sure you have. Well, I'm curious, a in general, how, but also specifically, like one thing we've seen at Wave is that. The definition of a seed round is changing and expanding. Like there are seed rounds that happen pre-product and there are seed rounds that happen post-product. And very often these days, companies are raising a seed round, both pre-product and another seed round post-product. So like, how, how do you guys think about this? I think that it's becoming increasingly common for uh, for companies to raise two seed rounds. It's not just increasing. It's like the norm. Like it's the rare company that uh, doesn't these days. I will say one thing that we did was when we raised the venture fund, we structured it in such a way such that every company that spins out of the studio raises a convertible note from PSL Ventures. Like immediately, that's part of our spin out decision is we're also making an investment decision uh, of that super founder friendly note that is going to be a part ultimately of the of the seed or first seed round uh, that is a the same decision as okay we're gonna we're gonna spin this thing out. A thing that's that's important to note in here is PSL Ventures will never lead a round or price a round in a PSL studio company, but because that would be a conflict with your. Uh, totally with your like we're not going to price our own yeah exactly well i mean you could but but you need you need a pool of investors that are excited about things you're spinning out and if they start thinking that like oh well psl is just gonna (laughs) they're gonna invest in the ones they really believe in and then the ones they don't believe in they're gonna give us like yeah 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 i think it's ultimately value destructive to do that so so that said, you know, what, one way that we've definitely mitigated this is, hey, everybody who spins out, you can go raise money on your terms. You can do it sort of when you're ready. Yeah, totally. Once your children have, you know, all, all grown up and, and left the nest, you, you, maybe we were talking about your, your office space earlier. Yeah, a lot of them keep working in uh, the office for a while, right? Yeah, really for like a year. It's really until they're, they're 10 or 12 people because... So we have these two floors, and it's interesting, in my head, it's bifurcated by floor. So the floor where the studio um, employees are, it's chaotic. It's a great place to be when you're just kind of a founding team, but it's totally chaotic, and people are getting pulled into stuff all the time. You know, it's there's a ton of energy because there's all these other people around you. By the time you hit four, five, six people, you kind of want to be creating your own culture. You kind of want to be setting the hours for the company. You kind of want to be setting the rhythm for the company. And so we that's when people sort of move up to this second floor that's like really designed f- to empower the founders to sort of build their own culture that's a little bit more separate. And I think that that's important because once you're five people, you don't really need to draft off the energy of others anymore. You can kind of create your own your own sort of system and energy there. Yeah. And then once you're bigger than that, you know, you should probably go get your yeah. own office regardless. <laughs> That's probably the best, best for everyone. Um, 
But we like to, you know, ideally close. And I think if we could, we'll try and continue to sort of expand because I think it's it's helpful to be to stay really close because the 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 studio is effectively a co-founder. In, in the every business. case, yeah, you remain a board member of the company, right? Yep, exactly. So it tends to be the C- the CEO and and uh, someone from PSL as the initial board until a, a seed fundraise. But like really a co-founder of the company, we think of a, we're a gigantic 25-headed co-founder. And so the <laughs> idea that like you want to be as close as possible because, you know, every single one of us in the studio have equity in every single company that's is, is spun out. And like we really encourage founders, hey, like, hey, keep using these people, not like on a put an engineer on your schedule way and say they're responsible for this feature by Friday, but in a sort of more consultative way, in a way of sharing learnings, in a way of you know, hey, we need you for four hours to parachute in and help us solve this difficult problem. And uh, having a board member do that is one thing, but having this sort of team of 20 operators who are actively building day to day, I'm sounding like I'm sort of uh, speaking the party line here, but I found it to be pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, the very least, it's a built in community, right? I mean, one of the challenges of being a founder, I mean, like, us starting waves starting a venture firm is very different than starting a company but no different in this respect like it's lonely you know you're working building your thing every day uh and you know having a community is important maybe to to bring it on home then what's the future hold i mean like you guys started this four years ago and there were you know like you could probably count on certainly two hands if not one hand the number of studios out there now as you were saying there are industry associations of studios there's probably a <laughs> hundred of them like what a you know psl is obviously the elite and i say that not just as your you know co-host and, and friend but you guys really are how do you keep moving forward and innovating yeah i think right now we sort of have this spectrum with two points on it it's like if an entrepreneur wants to work with us they either can raise money from our venture fund or they can do the studio. I'd like to see more things along that spectrum. So it really is sort of a spectrum other than a buffet of two options. We only have so much time in the world, so tough to hold me to this. But I'd like to start open sourcing a lot of the stuff that I've talked about because I think creating sort of playbooks or at least like how-to guides on a lot of this stuff to be able to um, sort of inspire entrepreneurs or front entrepreneurs to use even if they're not working with us, like I, I think that creates a lot of value. And so I'm trying to figure out the right way to do that where I don't sort of lose focus, but also still get to put that stuff into the world. And also, you know, other people from our organization are, are sort of thinking about the same thing. And as uh, David Cohen or Brad Feld said in the title of their book, you know, I think the name of the game is really do more faster. It's how do we get more efficient at creating more companies per year? We're Pacific Northwest focused. So I think really the inspiring thing for me is Seattle is already sort of one of the best tech ecosystems in the world and has the most the two most valuable tech companies and how do we sort of uh, massively increase the the amount of net new entrepreneurship and startups that are happening in this ecosystem and so well man what, what you guys are 14% of you said of new company yeah, creation yeah and i don't and uh, to be clear i don't, don't want to grow that i want i want like i want us to, everything s- to, to grow. keep yeah. that number and for the pie to get way bigger you know, keep that, keep that percentage or, or, you know, or have that shrink. But like, to me, everything in service of continuing to increase the amount of startup activity is a great thing. And I'm, I'm just like, it, it seems like a no brainer that, uh, you know, we would be able to, to capture some amount of value in that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially with the venture fund now too. Uh, Hey, we got, we got options for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Let's bring it home. 
hope you, hopefully you enjoyed this uh, special turning the tables. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I no. should also say, we're t- I think we're going to title this How a Startup Studio Works. I have no idea if this is how a startup studio works. This is how Pioneer Square <laughs> Labs works. works yeah. For folks uh, uh, involved in other studios, either companies that have spun out um, or if you're running one, you know, it'd be interesting at some point to, to compare models. Yeah. Awesome. LPs, we will talk to you very soon. We'll be back with a main show episode very soon. We were supposed to do this week. I apologize. I got very sick uh, traveling last week. David is a human and gets sick when he's traveling <laughs> in back-to-back meetings like everyone. Uh, but uh, we will be back very soon with more exciting stories on the main feed as always. Sweet. All right, LPs, talk to you. Later. <laughs>